0: This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. You know, it's one of the age old mysteries of life. Does blue balls exist? I know you've pondered it. You're going to get an answer in a bit. The first scientific research into this controversial condition. Let me tell you, the results I think are going to surprise you. We're diving into blue balls. Look, it's not the prettiest thing to talk about. Someone's got to do it. We're getting to that soon. Also coming up, would you jump on a set of scales in front of an airport full of people? Because one airline's asking passengers to weigh in before they take off. First, though, the big story of the day.
1: Hack. One word. Justice.
0: On Triple J. Yeah, Australia's defamation trial of the century. You'll remember, decorated war veteran Ben Robert Smith was suing three newspapers over war crime allegations. Now, we've covered this case all the way through. Remember, there were COVID delays, scandalous evidence. It's estimated the case cost about $25 million. Today, it was the verdict everyone was waiting for, the big moment, and Ben Robert Smith lost his defamation case the judge dismissed the proceedings it's obviously a huge loss for ben robert smith and a big win for these media organizations so exactly what has happened well abc reporter jamie mckinnell's been covering this case right through for us and he's with us now g'day jamie thanks for coming on hack no worries hey dave can you remind us again who was ben robert smith suing and and why
2: Yeah, so this all started back in 2018 when some newspaper stories were published uh, by the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Canberra Times newspapers. Ben Robert Smith took those newspapers as well as three investigative journalists to the federal court in this civil case and he was claiming that he was defamed by these false allegations in the stories of unlawful uh, killings overseas while he was with the SAS, of bullying of his SAS colleagues and also uh, an allegation of domestic violence against a woman in a Canberra hotel room. So, the publisher of the newspaper's Nine Entertainment uh, defended their stories as true. They mounted uh, different defences of um, substantial and contextual truth. So, they were basically standing by their reporting and defending it. And today, that uh, defence has certainly paid off.
0: Wow, this is massive. Can you take us through the verdict, what the judge said today?
2: Yeah. So, it gets a little bit tricky when we start talking about defamation. But the way Ben Robert Smith was arguing his case was that there were uh, more than a dozen different imputations or meanings in these stories and some of the most serious meanings were things like that he had you know, allegedly shot someone overseas uh, unlawfully and outside of the rules of war. So when Nine was mounting this truth defence, they put all of these allegations in their court documents and then called SAS witnesses to court and uh, they were accusing him of six unlawful killings all up while he was in Afghanistan. The judge today, Justice Anthony Bersanko, has ruled that the imputations or the meanings in relation to four of those unlawful killings uh, were substantially true, that nine has made out its substantial truth defence. So what it means is that Ben Robert Smith's case was basically dismissed and there was a little bit more detail and complication in it, but generally what it means is that the judge was satisfied that some very serious meanings that were uh, being complained of here by Ben Robert Smith, including, for example, that he murdered an unarmed and defenceless Afghan man during a mission one time overseas. Um, The judge was satisfied that Nine has established their defence of substantial truth into uh, things like that.
0: So has Ben Robert Smith had anything to say? Was he in court today?
2: No, really surprisingly, he wasn't even here for the decision, which you would think that he would want to be here for, but he was under no obligation to attend court today. All of the lawyers that we saw all throughout this trial were all here, Um, but Nine has actually been reporting that Ben Robert Smith has recently been in Bali, and we're not sure whether he's still there. We haven't heard anything from him, but I have heard uh, from his employer, uh, Network 7. Uh, He's an executive with them, and they've put out a statement saying, uh, that Ben Robert Smith is on leave and continues to be on leave and a decision about his future will be made in the near future.
0: Yeah, right. What a time to be in Bali. Well, I know some of the journalists outside the court spoke, the journalists involved in this. Let's have a listen to one of them, Chris Masters. Here's what he had to say.
3: It's a relief for the media, frankly. You we know, we're, we're so often on our knees, it, it often feels so hard to to even do ordinary work, let alone work as difficult as this. And my final words go to those soldiers. I don't want people to think of this as a bad day for Australian soldiers. I think of those soldiers that not only had physical courage but also moral courage. I'm proud that they're out there, that as journalists we can meet Australian people who are prepared to tell a difficult truth and stand up to it.
0: That was journalist Chris Masters speaking outside of court a bit earlier. You are listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with ABC reporter Jamie McKinnell about the verdict in this Ben Robert Smith defamation trial. He's lost his defamation case. Jamie, was there anything else that, you know, the journalist media said outside of court today?
2: Yeah, there was another one of the respondents, one of the journalists who was being sued, Nick McKenzie. He's another investigative reporter who was uh, behind a lot of this material. And he spoke about, uh, you know, this representing vindication, vindication and that, that it was justice. He, he made mention of, uh, you know, the bravery of, of Nine's SAS witnesses. There were a lot of people who uh, were either former or current SAS witnesses who came to court and gave evidence under code names. And they spoke about missions in Afghanistan and things that happened, and he was sort of speaking about their bravery and uh, and paying tribute to them.
0: I just want to make clear this was not for people who may not be fully across it. It wasn't a criminal criminal proceeding. Um, very different. It doesn't mean Ben Robert Smith is going to jail or anything like that. What what's likely to happen now?
2: Well, the next stage of the proceedings will be to determine any costs or any damages that uh, might have been awarded. Obviously, we don't need to do that anymore. Uh, So, what's going to happen is the judge will publish his full uh, judgment, his full document of all of his his reasons. What he was doing today was reading out a summary And that judgment that he's going to publish potentially next week is probably going to be very long and very complicated. Uh, And then the case will come back uh, probably to answer some questions about who pays the legal bills, which will probably be uh, very, very large bills.
0: Can Ben Roberts-Smith appeal this?
2: Yeah, he can. And uh, one of his lawyers, Arthur Moses SC, when he was leaving court, he was asked that question. Um, He didn't have a lot to say in terms of elaborating on that, but he said, we'll consider Uh, the reasons and the judge's decision and uh, look at any issues around an appeal. So you would have to say that based on that, is certainly still uh, an option, but they'll probably need a lot of time to go through that very long judgment and decide their next move.
0: Hey, Jamie, you've been covering this case uh, right from get-go. You've been filling us in along the way. Can you just paint us a bit of a picture of what it's been like covering this case? You're in court every day, so you cover uh, big things all the time, but this one in particular, how has it been uh, working on it?
2: This one was really different and one of the most challenging cases to report on, not only because of the subject matter, but because of the legal minefields that you were navigating as well and deciding how to, you know, accurately and fairly report what was happening in court. But also it was really fascinating and the most interesting thing for me was seeing those SAS witnesses because these are people who have very secretive lives and for very good reason. They do a very dangerous job. Uh, and so uh, hearing the people like that give evidence, they gave evidence under codename, and we were never allowed to see their faces. We could only hear their voices. But hearing people like that speak about such secretive and important work, I think for me, was the most fascinating thing.
0: It's extraordinary stuff. You've done an exceptional job. Jamie McKinnell, been a huge day for you. You've still got so much more to do, but we appreciate you coming on, explaining it all, breaking it down. Thanks for coming on Hack.
2: No worries. Thanks, Dave. HACK! Blue balls, not what you think they are.
3: People with vulvas experience the exact
2: same thing. On Triple
0: jack, Yeah, a bit of a gear shift here. Blue balls, you heard of it? I know you have. Yes, I'll give some kind of definition here if you're not in the know and maybe if you've got people around you don't want to hear this, turn the radio down, tune out for a bit, but basically blue balls, slang term used for the pain that a guy or a person with a penis might feel in the scrotum area when they're sexually aroused, but don't orgasm. There's always been this debate, right, about whether it's real or not. I'm sure you've had these discussions with your mates or partner or someone. The thing is, though, there's not been a whole lot of scientific research into it until now. Now, you might know the podcast Science Versus. It's one of the top science podcasts in the world. And they've joined forces with researchers from a university in Canada to try to figure out once and for all, are blue boars real? And if so, how common are they? And with me now is the presenter and executive producer of Science Versus, Wendy Zuckerman. Hey, Wendy, thanks so much for coming on Hack.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm I'm like, I'm like, giggling so much. That was such a lovely introduction. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, we did a study on football.
0: Yeah. I mean, sorry. When this popped through into my email inbox, I thought I'm probably going to agree to do it. I mean, <laughs> I, there's so much I want to get into, but I need to ask, how the hell did you get into this study at all? Like what led to this?
1: So, okay. As you mentioned, I host this podcast called Science Versus. We look at Sort of fads and ideas that are out there and put them under this scientific microscope try and do it with a bit of fun and we had a a, a blue ball shaped hole in our schedule uh we just like <laughs> needed to make an episode pretty quickly and I was like I, I- Blue balls would be kind of fun. Like maybe we could squeeze out 15 minutes on this. Squeeze and out. what would you know? Like now we have a scientific study and a, a, a much longer episode, I'll tell you. But, but I will say, so I started looking into the research when I – the nerd that i am i went straight to google scholar which is where you find academic papers and i write blue balls in there you know it was a, it was a lovely you know monday morning i'm typing blue balls into google <laughs> scholar but i found basically nothing and i so there was this one case report and a case report is where you have a description of one or two patients and there was this very bizarre i could only describe it as case report of this 14-year-old boy who went to the hospital because the pain in his balls was so bad. Wow! And then the doctors diagnosed him ultimately. Like he went home from the hospital with the diagnosis of blue balls. And so this paper was written more than 20 years ago and there was nothing else on blue balls. And I I called up the doctor who did that diagnosis all those years ago. And he was hilarious. And he was just like, there's nothing on Blue Balls. There's nothing on Blue Balls. And and I, I just, I couldn't believe it. And I was also like, well, how are we going to make this episode if all I have is this one case report to go on? And so me and my editor, Blythe Terrell, were like, well, how about we survey our listeners? You know, we have, we have an audience, we can ask them about their experiences with Blue Balls. And the results of that survey was so intriguing to these researchers at Queen's University in Canada that they were like, let's collaborate and actually, you know, make sure... That Like the science is totally buttoned up and let's publish this in a peer-reviewed journal. And that paper has
0: just been published. It's extraordinary that this <laughs> kind of idea in your head and this little search on Google has led to peer-reviewed <laughs> re- study. Incredible. <laughs> Can I just ask, like we'll get into the findings in a bit, but the experience of that boy that went to hospital when you say he was diagnosed, was he diagnosed with blue balls or is there some kind of Latin name, like, I don't know, Pallium azurium or something that they. Oh,
1: right. <laughs> I mean, Jonathan Shallot is the doctor that, um, I mean, he's got a bit of a, a humour to him. And, like, as we will discuss, the diagnosis of blue balls was not a chronic condition. <laughs> um, you know, it goes away on its own or you can sort yourself out. Mm. Um, so, you know, this doctor wasn't particularly concerned for those who have googled this in the past and and not gone to google scholar they might have come across this term called epididymal hypertension right. um which i it's it's very funny because it sounds very scientific the epididymis I and mean, then it's an an anatomical body part and hypertension whoo. but the truth is there's like i mentioned there's no science on this there's no analysis of the epididymis which um like this sort of wormy thing uh that stores sperm even in sort of quite legitimate looking medical websites they'll be like epididymal hypertension ground zero for the balls the epididymis but really (laughs) no research to back that up whatsoever and in fact the results of our survey Kind of suggested something
0: totally different. Well, I have to ask about the methodology. <laughs> so it's, Please. yeah. So, right. So it was a survey. What kind of questions were you asking? Who were you asking? How many people?
1: Okay. So, in the end, more than 2,600 people responded. And our first questions were basically, we, we didn't say, do you, did you experience blue balls? It was, when you've approached orgasm but didn't ejaculate, Have your testicles or the area around them ever hurt or felt achy? And I should say that sort of one of the first questions we asked was, do you have a penis or do you have a vagina? And I do want to acknowledge that there is a rainbow of genitals out there that weren't exactly captured in this study. But so then if you said you had a penis, then you asked like, this question about have when you have approached orgasm, but didn't ejaculate, have your testicles or the area around them ever hurt or felt achy? If you said you had a vagina, then we asked sort of a similar question, but related to different anatomy. Because our question wasn't just whether blue balls existed. We also wanted to know if you have felt it, how painful was it? How common was it? Because if it's just in the sort of popular thinking. And in that case report, this guy went to hospital. It was incredibly painful. So we wanted to know how common that pain was. And then if you didn't have a penis, if you have a vagina, we wanted to know, do you experience something like blue balls? Like perhaps not around your balls, but around your genitals are you feeling this achy thing, which really had not been reported in, you know, you can find kind of Fun terms for it: pink pelvis or stuff like that. Um, but we wanted to know how many how many people with vaginas felt this.
0: So, what did you find?
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's start. With the vaginas, despite blue balls being considered a male phenomenon, 42% of the people in our surveys who have vaginas said they too felt something like blue balls. We also had a section where they could comment a little more and like give us more details. So one person said they felt sharp pains, another described it as throbbing or feeling achy and irritated. So of the people with penises, over 50%, so 56% of people with penises said that yes to that question about whether they got blue balls
0: so So, people across the board here are experiencing this have we got to change the name
1: we definitely have to change the name so at Sides versus we've been desperate to think of one and all that we have is terrible let me (laughs) (laughs) achy breaky parts someone on the team suggested junk funk I was thinking crabby crotch, (laughs) (laughs) wine groan came up, untapped lap. (laughs) (laughs) Miss.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you've got some name suggestions, uh, new name for blue balls. Hit the text line oh four three nine seven five seven triple five. Already getting a lot of messages through. Wendy, someone says this chick is wicked. Love the energy. You are listening to Hack. I'm Dave Markesey speaking with the host of Science Versus Wendy Zuckerman about her research, the first scientific study into blue balls. Wendy got a lot of messages coming through. The other interesting part of this research, though is more serious because it was centred around people feeling pressured into sex or continuing sex because of not wanting to hurt their partner's feelings or hurt them physically. What did you find?
1: While there was a lot of fun around this survey, and you know, I don't want to ever say the word blue balls with a straight face. No. I want to be clear. But- There was this really serious aspect to to our survey, which was around how many people felt pressured to do something sexual because of their partner's fear of blue balls. You just kind of grow up with it. And I was really saddened because I'm a millennial and and on our team, we we have some Gen Z members and they had it too. So I, I was really hoping that this fear of blue balls and this pressure to do something to relieve their poor partner's Fear. I would have thought I was really hoping that would be squeezed out of the next generation. Because hell, even if blue balls happens to every single person with a penis out there, and it's really painful, like no one should ever feel pressured. Because you know what, Nurse Mary Five Fingers can just <laughs> help them out. Like this is not up to you to relieve your partner of their blue balls. In our survey, we asked both people with penises and vaginas if they had felt pressure. Forty percent of those with vaginas said they had been pressured to do something sexual because of their partner's fear of blue balls, 40%. Wow. And this was compared to less than 4% of people with penises who had felt that pressure. It's so many people who are, you know, whether, you know, whatever that sexual thing was that, that are just doing this out of their partner's fear of blue balls. When from our data, we found that, you know, while it, you know, more than half had felt it. What I haven't mentioned is that it was often rare or very rare. So that's what most of most people told us. So it's not like this was happening every single time they didn't ejaculate. And it was really rare for this to be very painful. Only seven percent of people with penises who ever felt blue balls said that it was severely painful. So A, it's not that painful. It doesn't happen that often. And no matter what, they can sort it out themselves.
0: Yeah. You've got the tools in your toolkit?
1: <laughs> sure do. Go
0: use them. That's really interesting. I mean, you know, we're having laughs and stuff. As you said, there's some more serious elements to this research. Do you think it could lead, Wendy, to some kind of greater recognition here or even just more research into this area?
1: Having data around how many people feel pressured to have sex around blue balls, it really does take it from this kind of, funny silly thing to oh wow this has stakes like this this has big stakes i mean one of our listeners told told us that she'd been called a tease others said they were made to feel guilty about not making their partners ejaculate so this whole conversation around you know you're making out with someone and they're kind of like oh but i don't want to get blue balls from our data it suggests those conversations are happening hopefully the more we normalize someone saying yeah not my issue, mate. Like, that's great. That's great.
0: Well, Wendy, it's big stuff. Someone had to get into it. I'm glad it was you. I'm glad it was Thank Science you. Versus. Thanks for joining us on Hack.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. And
0: remember, if you want to hear more, you can go listen, subscribe to the Science Versus podcast. It's amazing. Uh, It's there for you right now. I've got so many messages coming through. Name suggestions. I asked for them and now I'm getting them. Uh, Techie Testes, Genitalius Throbinia. That one was from Len. Another person, Blue Bits, seems pretty inclusive. Another person in Philippa said the same thing. Ouchie Pouch. And someone saying, yeah, look, I'm, it's brilliant. So glad the sexual coercion bit has been addressed because that's still too common. And another person says, Wendy is on Hack. My two favourite programs merged. Best Thursday ever. Hey, we do what we can.
2: Hack. No one <laughs> wants to be weighed in public.
0: Yes, I can understand. It seems a little unusual, doesn't it? On Triple Jack. How annoying is it when you rock up to the airport or are you running late and they say, oh, we got to weigh your hand luggage? and you're praying that it's underweight. Well, what would you do if instead of asking to weigh your bags, the airport staff actually asked to weigh you? Because Air New Zealand's making headlines for this. They've started This Week Weighing Passengers. It's part of a weight survey over a month, so it's not forever and it's voluntary. You don't have to do it. But I'm wondering, would you do it? What if it was about making your flying greener or safer? Let me know, 0439 757 555. A lot of people are asking, why are we doing this? And why aren't there more airlines doing it if it's such an important thing to improve safety and, and all the rest of it? It's time to ask an expert. Professor Doug Drury is the head of aviation at CQ University. He was a pilot for years, so he knows a lot about this stuff. And he's with us now. G'day, Doug. Welcome to Hack. G'day. How are you going? Yeah, well, thank you. What do you reckon's behind this survey? Like, why would Air New Zealand be doing this? Every
3: airline does this. Um, we have to maintain the weight and balance on the aircraft. And, um, when I was flying for the airlines, we, we went through a phase where we understood that, um, passengers were getting heavier. And so we worked off of an, uh, uh FAA standard that um, they gave us for an average weight. And to how we got, how they got those numbers, nobody really knew. But now we kind of have a feel for it because Air New Zealand is doing it. They've asked for 10,000 volunteers uh, to come in and volunteer their weight so that they can take an average weight of 10,000 people, which is a really good sample size
0: right okay and- so a, a lot of airlines are doing this as you're saying or everyone's doing it it's about efficiency it's about safety can you explain like what the weight of the plane means in terms of those two things speed and efficiency?
3: yes well um, the weight of an aircraft is you know there's a what we call an empty weight where there's no fuel nothing in it and then they add things like fuel oil and then passengers luggage cargo, and um, how far the airplane is going to go depends on how much fuel they're going to need so they have to pay attention to the weight and balance because that determines whether the aircraft can fly or not and so we base this standard off of a average of what we know historically is happening but like they the last Air New Zealand survey was done in 21, which was post-COVID, when they knew that everybody had been sitting around for a couple of years because of lockdowns and things like this. Um, They figured we might as well check again. Well, they're doing it again because now we've been active and people are working out. Maybe we don't weigh as much as we did a couple of years ago. So they're hoping for that because that means they can take more cargo on board or they can uh, have more fuel for longer distances. So these are the things that an airline will think about. That's yeah, when they're doing this. That's so interesting. So it's like a um a
0: full international national weigh in that we're all getting. We're all hoping. Oh, I hope we hope we pass. Hope we're fit. Um, <laughs> yeah. we've got some messages coming through. Someone says I often get on the scales before boarding a, pl- a flight. It's a common practice in the defence force, and they weigh us while carrying our field packs, combat rigs, and weapons. That was from Dave in Queensland. Yeah, I was going to ask Doug. You know, in your experience as a pilot, you've probably had to do this on planes as well absolutely
3: Um, there would be some airports where the altitude was a bit high the temperature was a bit high and the humidity was a bit high and so we were limited and there's all kinds of charts in our aircraft manuals that we have to work off of and so when we realized we were very close to the edge of rejection we would have to physically get the scales out and, and start weighing people Wow. Okay. That's, that's so interesting. I mean, a
0: a lot of debate about this uh, online, of course, people talking about, you know, whether people should be charged more for weighing more or having like bigger bags or whatever. Do you think it's likely that the airlines are going to change the way that works in terms of what we pay for baggage, what we pay for our own personal weight in the future?
3: Um, the additional baggage, yes, um, the personal weight has been an issue for years and it's um, it's gone to court. It's you know, discriminatory practice, uh, some say, and you know, you're picking on me because I have a health issue and blah blah blah. Um, and I'm not diminishing that at all, but what I'm trying to say is that this has been in the works for years. And uh, people try to, or airlines try to get an average. And uh, we do understand that uh, weight varies from human to human and has, does baggage load from human to human. And that's why we are restricted on how much we can bring on board. and, And now they're looking at us. And this is purely a survey. Um, for the airlines to use for the next couple of years. Someone on the text line, hey, how much data on ourselves
0: do we give social media without an option to opt out? That's a very good point. Another person says, I often fly on small 12-seat commercial flights. We get weighed on every check-in. It makes sense that the bigger airlines do it too. That's from Danny in Townsville. And another person says, why everyone doesn't seem fair that, you know, one person can carry on the same as another person who weighs a whole lot more. How much are airlines doing, just quickly, Doug, because we don't have a whole lot of time, but in terms of fuel efficiency, is that a big focus at the moment?
3: Well, it, 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 the fuel efficiency, the aircraft provides its own fuel efficiency. Now, the heavier it is, the, the less efficient it becomes. But the the difference is they're not going to leave people behind. They want to know how much cargo they can carry and how much fuel they need. Uh, and that's where the the a lot of money is made for an airline is in freight and um if the weather's bad do they need more fuel so this is why we have these issues look it's definitely interesting stuff
0: it's got a whole lot of people talking but it's good to get beyond the headlines and get an expert opinion because once you hear that, hey, it's, Im- it's, it's important that all airlines do it, that this happens all over the world, it seems uh, a whole lot less scandalous. Doug Drury, the head of aviation at CQ University, thank you very much for sharing your expertise and coming on Hack. My pleasure. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.
3: Hack on Triple Jack.